Father in heaven, thank, thank you so much for this blessed uh, day of rest that you have given to us. We thank you for the privilege of being here tonight once again. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which gives us certainty in a world of darkness, in a world of confusion. We ask that tonight you will give, give us clarity of mind and you will give us tenderness of heart to hear your voice, to receive what you say, and to make it a part of our lives. We claim your promise that when we come to you in prayer, you hear us and you answer. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Okay, let's begin at the very top of the lesson, lesson number 16. That means that after tonight we have four more lessons. Time has gone by fast. You know, it's the month of meetings, but uh, time has gone by awful fast. And uh, we'll have to schedule something like this a little bit later on this year, maybe in the fall, to study 20 other prophecies. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of prophecies left in the Bible to study. Lots of stories in the Old Testament which are prophetic. But let's begin with the study that we have tonight. In 1991, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. When the international community mustered their forces for the Gulf War, Saddam claimed that this would be the mother of all battles. In just a few weeks, Saddam was proved wrong as he suffered a devastating defeat. In our present lesson, we want to study the real mother of all battles. In the book of Revelation, it is called the Battle of Armageddon. So let's jump right into our study. And what we want to do is, first of all, discuss the literary structure uh, within which the Battle of Armageddon fits. And I hope you took a look at this literary structure here. Uh, you'll notice that there are three places where the word victorious is highlighted. Did you notice that? At these three places, Revelation reaches the same climax. In other words, it reaches the same uh, climax three times in the last half of the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly because we have looked at a portion of this before. Revelation 12:17 outlines the final battle, doesn't it? It speaks about the dragon being filled with wrath against the remnant of the woman's seed, right? And the issues are the commandments of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That is a very brief outline of the end time battle. It doesn't give you a lot of detail, but it gives you the essentials. Then in chapter 13, we have an amplification of Revelation 12:17. If you remember, the way in which the dragon is going to war against the remnant is by raising up a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. The beast from the sea will govern 1260 years. At the end of the 1260 years, it will receive a deadly wound. And then it will be helped by the second beast to recover its power, its worldwide power. And at the very end, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth will enforce the mark of the beast, will enforce the number of the beast. In other words, they will make war against the remnant of Revelation 12:17, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's more detail in Revelation 13 about this end time war. Are you following me so far? 
Now in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, after these two beasts persecute God's people at the very end, God's people stand what? Victorious. In other words, this is the climax. It reaches the very end. After the crisis, God's people are victorious on Mount Zion with the Lamb. The 144,000 victorious people. But then we find that in the structure there are some things that God needs to say about what happened before they got there. So in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, John goes back before this victorious scene. In other words, it's not in chronological sequence. And here he speaks about three angels that divided the world into two groups. Those who follow the dragon and those who constitute the remnant of Jesus Christ. And so there were three messages that polarized the world. Then in Revelation 14, 14 through 19, at the conclusion of these messages, two groups are separated by Jesus. The harvest of the earth and the wine press. The harvest of the earth has the seal of God and the wine press has what? The mark of the beast. In other words, after the messages, the world is polarized into two groups. And then when you reach Revelation 14, verse 20, the wicked in the wine press come against the city. They're outside the city, aren't they? And this scenery comes from the book of Joel. In the book of Joel, the wicked come to the valley of Jehoshaphat outside Jerusalem with the intention of destroying those who are in the city. That's the backdrop that we find here. And so in Revelation 14, verse 20, once again, we have the wicked who come against the city. But when they're about to destroy those in the city, uh, it tells us there that certain horses come and they trample the wine press and the blood splatters up to the horses' bridles. Now, it doesn't tell you the name of this city. And it doesn't tell you who's riding the horses. Revelation 14, 20 leaves two big questions. Which is the city? And secondly, uh, who is riding the horses? It doesn't say. But later on in Revelation, it is going to say. Then after you have this scene of the wine press gathered outside the city to destroy those in the city, then you have another victorious scene. See, it reaches the same climax as it reached in Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Are you following me? And once again, God's people are seen standing on the sea of glass, they're victorious over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, and they're singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. But now John says, now wait a minute, there's still some things that I failed to tell you about what happened before this group was victorious. And so now he goes what? He goes back once again. And he's going to describe, starting with Revelation 15 verses 5 through 8, the moment that the door of probation closes when the temple in heaven is filled with smoke. Let me ask you, when this door closes, have the, third, the three angels' messages been proclaimed already? Has the world been polarized into two groups? Yes, absolutely. Now, the door of probation closes, and then in Revelation 16, we have the pouring out of the plagues. Are the plagues poured out after the close of probation? Yes. yes. In fact, the plagues are what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. The period of the plagues is the period of the Great Tribulation that comes after the close of the door of probation. So the plagues are poured out. 
In Revelation 16, you have all seven plagues are explained. But in Revelation 17 and 18, John is going to say, now wait a minute. I told you about all the plagues in their order, but there are two plagues that I particularly want to go back and I want to explain certain things again that I did not explain when I talked about the sequence of the plagues the first time. And so in Revelation 17 and 18, John goes back and he explains the sixth and the seventh plague, which he had already mentioned in chapter 16. Are you following me so far? Good. And then, of course, in Revelation 19, 1 through 10, where are God's people again? They're once again in heaven, and they're victorious, and they're singing to God. Let me ask you, can you read the book of Revelation in a linear fashion? It is impossible. If you think that you're going to know what's going to happen from the times of Christ to the second coming of Jesus, and you think you can begin in Revelation 1, verse 1, and read the order of events as they're going to occur, one right after another, by following the book of Revelation, you're not going to understand anything. Because the book of Revelation runs in cycles. In other words, it repeats and repeats. He goes back and he says, some things I haven't told you, I need to tell you. So he presents God's people victorious in Revelation 19, 1 through 10. But here's the interesting thing. In Revelation 19, 11 to 21, interestingly enough, God's people are not in heaven yet. In fact, Jesus is seen sitting on a white horse, and the armies of heaven are following him on white horses. Are you with me? Now the question is, how can God's people be victorious in heaven, in verses 1 through 10, if Jesus hasn't come on the white horse with the armies of heaven to pick him up? It's very simple. Revelation 1 through 10, 19, 1 through 10, presents the climax, God's people victorious, but now John says, I want to tell you how they got there. And so in verses 11 to 21, he now describes the second coming of Jesus on a white horse, followed by the white horses of heaven to rescue God's people from planet earth and to take them to heaven. Do you see how important it is to understand the literary structure of the last half of Revelation? It's a vital uh, study. Yes. He uses the wine press because the wine press, as we'll see in our study tonight, uh, is a place where they still have wine presses in Italy where people get in in their bare feet and they trample on the grapes. And as they're trampling on the grapes, the, the grape juice uh, spatters on the get red. And so the wine press is used as a symbol of the wicked because their blood is going to be shed at the second coming of Jesus. And by the way, when Jesus comes, his garments are stained in red. Did you notice that in Revelation 19? It's, the, the garments are red not because they're stained with his blood. They're red because they're stained with the garments of the enemies of God's people. Because he's coming to trample the winepress. Does that answer your question? And we'll deal with this a little bit later in the lesson. Now, did I see another hand? No other hands. Good. <laughs> if you don't understand, raise your hand. We need to advance, but we're not going to advance at the expense of not understanding. Okay, let's talk about events before the seven last plagues. Because the Battle of Armageddon is really the seventh plague, and the preparation for Armageddon is the sixth plague. Now, Revelation makes it clear 
that several things occur before the seven last plagues are poured out. First, the three angels have proclaimed their messages to all the world. Is that clear in your mind? Absolutely. Every person on planet earth has chosen to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast, correct? And the door of probation has closed, correct? Because the plagues are God's wrath poured out without any what? Without any mercy, which means that probation must have closed or else they would be mingled with mercy. Always when probation is open, God's judgments are mingled with mercy. But the seven last plagues are not mingled with mercy. That means that the door of probation has closed. And then, of course, as soon as the door closes, the angels are seen leaving the heavenly temple to pour out the seven last plagues. Now, I don't want to dedicate a lot of time to the first five plagues because our particular uh, study this evening deals with the sixth and the seventh plagues. But we need the first five plagues as a backdrop, as a preparation to understand the sixth and the seventh plagues. So let's go quickly through the first five plagues. The first plague was a foul and loathsome sore, which came upon the men who received the mark of the beast. So when the plague's up, when the first plague is poured out, everyone who's going to receive the mark of the beast, have they received it? According to this, yes. Has probation closed? Obviously, yes. Now, Zechariah 14, 12 and 13, and by the way, we'll come back to these verses later on in the study when we deal with the sixth plague, because we're going to find that when the sixth plague is poured out, the results of the first plague are still lingering. <laughs> now, in Zechariah 14, 12 and 13, we have the explanation that this plague will cause the flesh of the wicked to what? Dissolve. To dissolve while on their feet. And their what? Eyes. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now, folks, every plague has a moral reason. God doesn't just have a bunch of plagues in his hat, and he says, well, let me just choose seven and pour them out. Each plague is sent because of a particular sin which has been committed in Babylon. This particular plague is poured out upon the tongue which dissolves in the mouth because, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, the powers of the earth have used their tongues to speak what? To speak lies. And that's why this plague afflicts the tongue. Now, notice the second plague. In the second plague, the sea is turned into blood, and everything in the sea died. Now, Revelation speaks about a death decree against God's people. I believe that the death decree will be proclaimed immediately after the first, first plague. In fact, the, during the first five plagues, the wrath of the wicked is going to greatly increase as the plagues are poured out against God's people. Because they're going to think that the plagues are being poured out because of God's people. And after the first plague, after this noisome sore or loathsome sore that is spoken about, the wicked are going to say, that's it. We can't let these people live. And so they're already talking about giving a death decree against God's people. So God says, okay, you're talking about blood. So here is a sea of blood. 
And after the sea, and by the way, I'm going to prove this. After the sea is turned into blood, then they say, this is it. And this is where they proclaim the death decree. And the reason we know that is because the third plague is explained by the angel who pours out this plague. The reason for the plague is explained. You see, the plagues have a reason. They're not just God pouring out judgments indiscriminately. No, the first plague upon the tongue. They use their tongue to speak lies. The second plague, the sea turns into blood because they're talking about shedding the blood of God's people. The third plague, because they proclaimed a death decree to shed the blood of God's people. Notice Revelation chapter 16, and let's read verse 5, the explanation for the third plague. It says, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, and the one who was, and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Why is this third plague poured out? Because the wicked have the intention of what? Of shedding the blood of God's people. In other words, this is the death decree. Now, let's notice the fourth plague. In the fourth plague, the what? The sun scorches all the vegetation with intense heat. Why do you suppose this plague falls on the sun? because Christians have insisted on keeping the day of the sun. See, each plague has a moral reason. First one, on the tongues, the tongue has spoken lies. The second one, on the sea, because they're talking about destroying God's people. They proclaim a death decree after the second plague, so God says, you want to shed the blood of my people? I give you blood to drink. The fourth plague, upon the sun, which scorches all of the vegetation, because they had insisted on worshiping on the day of the sun. Now, under the fifth plague, there is a supernatural what? Darkness, which covers the whole earth, especially the throne of the beast. And a little bit later on in the lesson, we'll talk a little bit more about this supernatural darkness because it has its roots in the Old Testament. Now, let's read the note. These plagues are worldwide. Let me ask you, is Babylon worldwide? Are the plagues for Babylon? Yes, so are the plagues worldwide. Yes, they are worldwide. Now, they're not universal, but they're worldwide. <laughs> you say, now how can they be worldwide but not universal? Well, they're not universal in the sense that they do not destroy all of the wicked on planet Earth. They're not universal in terms of affecting all of the people on planet Earth, but they do affect all of the geographical locations of planet Earth. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes, Didi. Yeah, that's, that's exactly my point. Not all the plagues are going to affect all of the people, but they will fall every place on earth. They will fall every place on earth, but they will not afflict everyone equally. They will be universal in terms of place, but not universal in terms of people. Are you with me? Okay, now, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll remark about this a little bit later on more. The plagues are worldwide because Babylon is worldwide, and therefore the plagues are for Babylon. Now, they are also consecutive. You understand what I mean by consecutive? They come one right after another, and they are cumulative. In other words, the first plague doesn't go away when the second one comes. They accumulate. Each plague increases the fury of the wicked against God's people. 
By the way, this is what is meant by the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It's a wine that produces wrath. Wrath against who? Against those who are loyal to God. Each plague is a punishment for a specific sin which has been committed in Babylon. This is seen by the fact that the angel of the waters gives the reason why he poured out the second plague. Before we continue our study of the plagues, we must compare two contrasting groups in Revelation, and you need to invert Babylon and Jerusalem. <laughs> I don't know whether you caught that. I caught it just before I came up here to teach. All these lessons were typed by myself. So any errors are my full responsibility. <laughs> but as long as I correct it, uh, as long as I say I'm sorry, you will forgive, right? Okay, now let's look at the parallel columns here. The wicked follow whom? The beast. And the righteous follow? The lamb. Babylon has a false trinity. God is a true trinity. Babylon has three counterfeit angels that gather the wicked. Three holy angels gather the righteous. The wicked have the mark of the beast. The righteous receive the seal of God. The wicked are gathered as grapes in the winepress outside the city. The righteous are gathered as the harvest and are inside the city. The destination of the wicked is the lake of fire. And the destination of the righteous is the sea of glass. Two groups all over planet Earth that have followed two different leaders, the beast and the lamb. Now let's take a look at Revelation chapter 17. In order to understand the exotic imagery of Revelation 17, it is necessary to comprehend the ancient understanding of the cosmic river dragon. In other words, this is the way in which the ancients conceived of rivers. It is recommended that you carefully study the illustration at the end of this lesson titled The Cosmic River Dragon in Scripture. Actually, it says just The Cosmic River Dragon, Let's take a look at that. What, how do we call the places where a river originates? We call them the headwaters. And how do we call the place where they end? They go into the sea. They're called the footwaters. Maybe you haven't heard that expression. Look it up in the dictionary. And by the way, we also speak of bodies of water, don't we? Now, all of these are remnants of an ancient way of thinking. You see, the ancients believed that there was this cosmic water dragon who had seven heads. And of course, the seven heads, as you can see here in the illustration, are really seven what? are really seven mountains. The heads are mountains. And what originates in the heads or in the mountains? The waters. The waters of the great river. Which river? The great river Euphrates. Now, what is the city that sits upon the waters of the Euphrates? It is Babylon. So you see, you have this seven-headed dragon, cosmic dragon, which is really seven mountains, but the seven mountains are the heads of this dragon, 
And the heads, the mouths of these heads, are spewing out water. And when they spew out the waters, the waters form the what? The body or the river. The river itself. The river is the body, in other words, of this cosmic dragon. And the mountains are the heads. Incidentally, the ancients also believed that when a river reached flood stage and it went out of its banks, it grew wings. In other words, this was a winged river dragon. Because when you look at the river from above, the water has gone out and it looks like the, the river has grown wings. And by the way, this is the concept behind the imagery in Isaiah 8, 7, and 8, which we'll look at a little bit later, where it speaks about the invasion of uh, the cities of Judah by King Sennacherib. It says that he invades city after city, and it compares him to the flooding of the river Euphrates. And it says that he's going to stretch, the river is going to stretch out its wings and fill Emmanuel's land. And it's going to reach even unto the neck which is Jerusalem. But of course, when it reached the neck, the angel of the Lord came out one night and killed 185,000 soldiers, and God's people were delivered. And so you need to understand that the mountains are really heads. Are you with me? And the river is really the dragon upon which Babylon sits. This helps us understand why in Revelation 17, it says that the woman is seated on this scarlet beast. And then it says that this woman is seated upon the waters. The question is, what is she seated on? Is she seated on a beast or is she seated on the waters? The fact is that it's two different ways of saying the same thing. And why is this dragon red? Or must be communism. No! The reason it is red is explained in Revelation 17. It's because the harlot has shed what? Has shed the blood of God's people. Are you with me? Now, do you understand this concept of the river dragon in antiquity? It's vital to understand Revelation chapter 17. And by the way, all of the heads or all of the mountains are not spewing water out at the same time. The heads spew water out to form the river one at a time. I want you to remember that. And I'm going to prove it when we go back to Revelation chapter 12. Now, uh, let's go then to uh, the section that says another look at Revelation 17. Number one, the vision of the judgment of the great harlot was given to John by one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Now, my question is this, which angel do you suppose came back to speak to John about the judgment of the great harlot. Which of the seven? Because there were seven angels that poured out the seven last plagues. says that one of them comes back. The question is, which? Which one do you think? Let me give you a hint. So we don't have to guess. What is the name of this harlot in Revelation 17? What is the name of it? Babylon. What was the river that Babylon was seated on? Which plague speaks about the Euphrates? Number six. Are you catching my point? I'll make it again. In Revelation 17, the angel comes to speak. One of the angels that brought the seven last plagues comes to, ex to explain the condemnation or the judgment of the great harlot. 
who sits on what? Many what? And her name is Babylon. Now the question is, what was the name of the many waters upon which Babylon was seated in the Old Testament? The Euphrates. So which angel of the seven angels deals with the river Euphrates? Number six. So the angel which comes back is going to explain which plague? He is going to explain the sixth plague. You understand me? Anybody that doesn't understand? Because this is of critical importance. Let me just put it on the board so you can visualize it. Revelation 17, verse 1. You have a harlot. Where is the harlot seated? On the waters. What is her name? Her name is Babylon. So far, so good? Now, this is coming to be explained by one of the angels, one of the seven angels who had the plagues. And immediately we ask the question, which of the seven angels is coming back to explain something? It has to be the sixth angel. Do you know why? Because the sixth plague falls upon the great river Euphrates. And whose river was the Euphrates? Babylon. And so this angel that comes to explain the judgment of the great harlot must be coming back to explain plague number six because that's the one that deals with Babylon and deals with the Euphrates River. Did you follow me now? Okay. Now, let's go to number two. We'll be able to go quickly through this now. The name which the harlot has on her head was Mystery Babylon, the great. Number three. The harlot whose name is Babylon was seated on many waters, right? Yes. But she is also said to sit, sit on a... Scar well, what is she sitting on after all? Is she sitting on a beast or is she sitting on waters? On both. They mean the same thing. Are you following me? No, that she rides the beast. When it says that she's riding a beast, she's really riding multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. The river that came from the heads. The rivers that came from the mountains. Now, notice the last part of this question. But she is also said to sit on a scarlet beast. The question is, how can the harlot be seated on both? Because the imagery is two different ways of speaking about the same thing. Number four. In Revelation 17, the seven heads of the dragon are identified as seven mountains. Oh, how can heads be mountains? Are you with me? Are they heads or are they mountains? They're both. Because of the imagery that we have here. You see, the, the mountains are really the heads of this cosmic dragon and, and the heads have mouths that are what? That are spewing out waters. And why are they spewing out waters? Because they want the waters to do what? To destroy God's people. See, the whole issue is the destruction of God's people. Now, and of course the seven heads or seven mountains symbolize what? Seven kingdoms. Seven kingdoms. Number five. One of the heads of the dragon on the heads, excuse me, on one of the heads of the dragon were ten horns, which represent what? Ten kings. But, notice, these ten kings really symbolize the what? The kings of the earth and of the 
whole world. It reminds me, the number 10 means something that is complete or total. It reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 where it says, Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. You see, in the Ten Commandments is contained the whole duty of man. These ten horns, these ten kings, represent the totality of the kings, the whole group of the kings of the earth and of the whole world. Number six, John was taken to see the, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. What is the judgment against Babylon? It is the seven last plagues. And finally, the great sin of the harlot is that she sheds what? She sheds the blood of God's people. So I want you to visualize this. You have this harlot. Is it a worldwide harlot? Yeah. Yes. She's sitting upon a scarlet beast or the waters. She's controlling the beast. Right? And what is the beast doing? It's, it's, it's filled with blood. That's why it's scarlet. Why is it red? Because it's filled with the blood of the saints, according to verse 6, and the martyrs of Jesus. It wants to destroy God's people who, who what? Remember the original verse? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who worship God, fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. Those are the issues, an attack against God's people. And the name of this harlot is Babylon. And the name of her river is the Euphrates River. Is the angel coming back to explain the sixth plague, which is the condemnation of Babylon? Yes, he is. In order to understand this, we have to comprehend an Old Testament background. We always have to look at the Old Testament background, because if we don't, we're trying to walk on one leg. And, and uh, you know, I know we can walk on one leg. Maybe I should say we're trying to walk with no legs. That would be a better, uh, a better uh, simile. Now, let's notice the Old Testament background. Revelation 17 is really a further explanation of the sixth plague in Revelation 16, 12 through 16. Is that clear in your mind now? We will see this connection in a few moments. But in order to comprehend the sixth plague, we must first understand some Old Testament background. What is represented by the waters of the Euphrates River? Is this a worldwide river? Yes. Uh, is it a worldwide harlot that's sitting on it? Must uh, those she attacks be a worldwide people? Of course. Must the kings be worldwide? The kings she controls? Absolutely. So this is worldwide. But in the Old Testament, there's a local illustration of all of this. Now, what is represented by the waters of the Euphrates River? What does the drying up of the waters represent? Oh, well, we'll see. Who are the kings from the east? Where is Armageddon? The answers to these questions are in the Old Testament. Now let's go to number one. Old Testament Babylon was the arch enemy of Israel, God's people. In fact, God's people were captive where? They were captive in Babylon. Now, number two, very important. Babylon boasted that she was the what? The I am. Doesn't that kind of remind you of Lucifer? Doesn't it kind of remind you of the man of sin who sits in the temple of God showing himself to be God? 
Doesn't it make you think of the beast where it says in Revelation 13, verse 3, that great is the power of the beast, and who shall be able to fight against him? It's the same arrogance. So Babylon boasted that she was the I am and would not be a what? A widow. So she must be, uh, she must have husbands, right? Nor lose her what? Oh, she has children too. Now, isn't this interesting? Do we have in the book of Revelation the same idea? Do we have a harlot? She committed fornication with the kings. Does she have children? Is she arrogant? Does she try and destroy God's people? Yes. She was arrogantly secure. This is the reason why King Belshazzar was having a party while the city was under siege. You can read that in Daniel 5. Imagine, the enemy surrounded the city and Belshazzar calls a party to celebrate. Now let me tell you a few things about Babylon. Ancient Babylon, the biblical Babylon, had 12 miles in extension. And you say, well, that's not very big. Fresno's bigger than that. True. But in antiquity, a 12-mile city was a humongous city. Babylon uh, had four walls. It had two inner walls, which measured 12 feet wide and 20 feet wide. And it had two outer walls, which measured 24 feet wide and 26 feet wide. This means that Babylon had 85 feet of walls surrounding it. Now you can know why they're arrogant. In fact, the outer walls were so wide that two horse-drawn chariots could go on top of the wall. Amazing. Not only this, Nebuchadnezzar, we know, had developed a, a system of canals because sometimes the Euphrates River would reach flood stage and it would flood the city. So what Nebuchadnezzar did was he built some canals along the outer edges. And by the way, you have an illustration of the city of Babylon. Uh, you don't have to get it now because I'll illustrate it with my hands. You'll see it a lot better. <laughs> so he made, he made these canals outside the city so that the overflow of the water would go out of out these canals and the city would never be flooded. And this would eventually lead to the downfall of Babylon. Now, also, the city of Babylon, the great bulwark of the city of Babylon was its river. You see, armies could come and surround the city, but nothing, uh, they couldn't do anything because the city had plenty of water, because the river ran right square through the city. And besides, through the water, they could uh, produce enough food uh, to sustain themselves. And there was no way, of course, that the enemy could uh, demolish all of these walls and overcome the city. So in other words, the source of its greatest strength was its Euphrates River. And that's, uh, that's the picture we find in Isaiah 47. She says, I'm seated queen, and I'm not going to be a widow, and I'm not going to lose my children. I'm okay. Invincible. I'm invincible, yes. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew that somebody sometime might come up with the idea of trying to dry up the riverbed of the Euphrates to try and come in through the riverbed, which was, the Euphrates was its greatest strength, but it also had the potential to be its greatest weakness. And so what they did was build some huge brass gates. And by the way, we, I didn't include this in the lesson. You can write it down. Isaiah 45 verses 1 to 3 speaks about those brass gates. They were huge brass gates that 
were joined to the wall and they reached to the very bottom of the river so that if they drive the riverbed, they still had those brass gates that the enemy would have to negotiate. The only problem is, the night that Babylon fell, they were so drunk that they forgot to close the gates. And historians such as Herodotus and Xenophon tell us that Cyrus came, he dammed up the river with logs where it entered the city, and as a result, the waters went into the canals. And by the way, he came in October, which is, which is dry season. In other words, he was smart. He came when the river was its, at its lowest ebb, or its lowest flow. And, uh, and so he diverted the river Euphrates out the canals, and the gates being opened, his armies were able to go into the city and conquer the city. Now with this in mind, let's take a look at a little bit more of this background. Number three, Babylon was seated on what? Many waters. The many waters of Babylon were the river Euphrates. You see the Old Testament background here coming through? Only in the Old Testament you're dealing with literal Babylon. You're dealing with a literal river Euphrates. You're dealing with literal kings from the east. You're dealing with God's literal Israel in bondage. You're dealing with Babylon's literal wine, which she gives to the nations, according to Jeremiah 51, 7 and 8. It says that Babylon has a cup in her hand. Very similar to Revelation 17. It's not in the lesson. You can write it down. Jeremiah 51, verses 7 and 8. It says that Babylon has a cup in her hand, and she gives the wine to the nations, and the nations become deranged. In other words, filled with wrath and with anger. They can't think straight, is what it's saying. So Babylon is seated on many waters. And the many waters are the river Euphrates, literally speaking. Number four, God predicted that there would be a what? A drought against Babylon's waters. In other words, her river was going to be what? Was going to be dried up. And the drying up of her river was going to lead to her what? To her downfall and her destruction. It would prepare the way for the coming of Cyrus and his armies to overcome the city. Now, I digress a little bit in number five. During the Middle Ages, when the woman was being persecuted, the dragon, by the way, how many heads does that dragon have? Hmm, interesting. Let's go there, just for a moment. Revelation chapter 12. Are they the same seven heads that the beast in Revelation 17 has? Yes. But only one head is what? Ruling at a time. And only one head is spewing out waters at a time. Are you with me? Now let's prove it. Revelation 12, and let's read verse 3 first of all, so you see I'm telling you the truth about the seven heads. It says that another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. So you have this dragon beast that has seven heads. But now I want you to notice something very interesting. In verses 15 and 16 it says, so the serpent, by the way, the serpent is the same dragon because it says in verse uh, 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So the dragon is the serpent. And by the way, have you ever seen a river? A river winds, doesn't it? Yeah, it's serpentine. Because, and that's why ancients believed that rivers were the body of a dragon or a serpent. Because the, because the river serpentine. And when it's at flood stage, 
it grows wings. Have you ever been to a Chinese restaurant that has a dragon with wings? Isn't that interesting? It's, it's going back to this memory that they had in antiquity of river dragons. Now, notice what it continues saying. So the serpent spewed water out of his seven mouths. Hey. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth. Now, wait a minute. How many mouths does he have? He's got seven, but he's only spewing water out of what? Out of one. Now, the question is, uh, which is that one? Well, we'll come back to it later. I just want you to get the picture for now. And so it says, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. See? The head, what is the head doing? The mouth in the head is spewing out water. And what is the purpose of spewing out the water? To what? To drown God's people, right? The woman, according to this. And incidentally, in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of the river, and it doesn't give it a name, it's the river Euphrates. So this is the river Euphrates. And by the way, this is happening during the time, times, and dividing of time. Did the harlot spew waters out at that time? Did she have the king spew waters out? And did she sit on the waters? And did she attempt to kill God's people? She most certainly did. Now, lest I forget this, are you catching the picture here? Revelation 17, it says that this dragon beast was, is not, and is to come up out of the bottomless pit or out of the abyss. Now, my question is, when is it that this beast was? If you compare Revelation 12, during the 1260 years. But what happened? The earth what? Helped the woman and swallowed up the waters. The beast from the earth with the two horns that we talked about this morning. Did they stop the persecution? The principles, the democratic principles. Yes, they did. They stopped the persecution. They swallowed up the waters of persecution. But let me ask you, is, are the kings of the earth going to once again spew out water at the behest of this harlot that sits upon the waters? Yes. So I believe that when it says that this beast, this persecuting beast was, it's talking about the 1260 years. It is not because it has a deadly wound. And it is to arise from the abyss, which in the Bible is the place of the dead, where the wounded beast was placed, and it will be because its deadly wound is going to be what? Its deadly wound is going to be healed, and then the seventh head is going to be spewing out waters to do what this dragon beast did during the 1260 years. Are you following me? Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. See, it all fits together when you, when you allow the whole book of Revelation to, to uh, work together, to come together. Now we have to hurry because time is flying. Okay, now, during the Middle Ages, when the woman was being persecuted, the dragon spewed water out of his mouth. What must that water represent? Multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples in order to cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now we know why these waters are flooding. Why are they flooding? Because they want to kill God's people. Would that be true also of the river Euphrates in Revelation 16? Absolutely. And it says, but the earth helped the woman. What was the earth? The United States, the territory of the United States. Helped the woman by swallowing up the waters. In other words, the deadly wound, the democratic principles that were imposed on this system for the last 200 years, according to Malachi Martin. Now let's go to question number five. 
Cyrus, the Medo-Persian general, came with other kings from the north and the east. And what did they do? They overcame, or they destroyed, or they conquered Babylon. Isn't that interesting? In other words, Cyrus and the kings from the east are those who come to deliver God's people from Babylon. By drying up what? The waters. And what happens with Babylon when her waters are dried up? How much strength does she have? None. She's lost it. And she falls. And after the river is dried up, Cyrus comes in with the kings from the east and overwhelms Babylon and God's people are what? Delivered so they can go back to Jerusalem. Let's read the note. The dragon... No. The Persian historians, Herodotus and Xenophon, tell us that Cyrus dammed up the river Euphrates where it entered the city of Babylon. In this way, the riverbed was dried up so that he and his armies could conquer the city. The city had great, great brass gates which protected the city where the river entered. But on that fateful night, they had been left open. The drying up of, of uh, Babylon's river Euphrates led to her downfall. Thus Babylon came to a sudden end with none to help her, according to Isaiah 47, verse 15. The identical expression that is used in Daniel 11:45, where it speaks about the king of the north, he will come to his end with none to help him. That must mean that the king of the north is the same as the harlot, is the same as the little horn, is the same as the beast, is the same as the man of sin. Are you starting to catch the picture? Do you suppose God felt that this was really important? This issue of the last power? He doesn't only give us one picture, he gives us five pictures of the same power. And he does it over and over again. Number six, the name Cyrus means the sun. In Revelation chapter 16, it speaks about the kings that come from the sunrise. It says from the east in Revelation 16 verse 12, to prepare the way for the kings that come from the east. But that does not reflect the Greek language. Because in Greek there are two words. And the two words are anatole. And the second word is heliu. What word do we get from heliu? What does, what does helios mean? It means the sun. Anatole means rising. And Helio means sun. In other words, to prepare the way for the kings from the sun rising. What does that first word from the east. Of course, the sun rises in the east. What word it means uh, rising. Sun rising. From the sun rising. From where the sun rises. Now, it's interesting that the name Cyrus means sun. And he comes from where? He comes from the east. Now, he was raised up in what? In righteousness. By the way, Cyrus is one of the most exceptional kings in antiquity. He was extremely magnanimous. When he conquered cities, he released all of the people who were in bondage. And he not only did that, but he also actually gave them uh, money and he gave them things to go back, take back to the land and rebuild their cities and rebuild their countries. He was an extremely magnanimous person. Cyrus was called God's what? Shepherd. And he came from a far country. He was also called God's what? Anointed which in the Hebrew is Mashiach. In other words, Messiah. 
Cyrus released God's people from bondage in Babylon so that they could return to where? To Jerusalem. Let me ask you, is Cyrus a messianic figure? Is he a type of the Messiah? He is, by all of his characteristics. And he comes from the east. Number seven. God not only predicted that Babylon's waters would dry up, but he also said that Babylon would be covered with the multitude of the what? Of the waves of the sea. In other words, the waters would dry up, but then the waters would what? Would drown Babylon. Don't forget that, because that's an important detail. The waters that dried up would then avalanche themselves on Babylon, and she would be drowned by her own sea. Number eight. Babylon will be left, would be left what? Desolate. And in one day, in one moment, in one day, she would lose her children and become a widow. Was she going to be forsaken by her husband? Was she going to be forsaken by her children? Absolutely. And then she would also lose the support of the what? No. Of the merchants from her, from her youth. Now, let's go to number nine. Babylon would sit in the what? In the dust. And she would be burned with fire. Is this the same imagery we have in Revelation? About end time Babylon? Absolutely. Is end time Babylon going to be burned with fire? Is she going to be left naked? Is she going to sit in the dust? Yes. Only it's not going to be over there in, uh, in Iraq. It's going to be a worldwide system. Who's going to go through this fate? Now, number 10. Babylon would drink the what? The wine of God's wrath. Un? What? Ah, thank you. An earthquake would mark her fall. Is there an earthquake that marks the fall of Babylon in Revelation? Yes. Only this is a local earthquake. The end time earthquake is a worldwide one. And her great leaders would be slain with the what? With the sword. Are the wicked destroyed with the sword when Jesus comes? Read it in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 21, the last verse of the chapter that describes the second coming of Jesus. Now, number 11, God's people were called upon to what? To flee from the midst of Babylon. Upon being delivered, God's people would what? Don't miss this point. They would sing over Babylon. Joyously. Now, in Revelation, is there a song that the redeemed are going to sing after the fall of Babylon? Yes. Are God's people going to go back to Jerusalem after the fall of Babylon? Yes. And so you have this beautiful Old Testament imagery which forms the backdrop for Revelation 6 plagues. So far, so good? Raise your hand if you're with me. If you're still awake. All right. 75%. Pretty good. (laughs) Now let's talk about Revelation's 6 plagues. The many waters upon which Babylon sits is the river Euphrates. Is that clear in your mind? From the type in the Old Testament? But these waters represent what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So, are we to expect, like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and other commentators are saying today, that when Revelation 17 says, Revelation 16 says that the waters of the Euphrates were dried up that we're supposed to look over to Iraq and someday that literal river over there is going to be dried up so that the Chinese and the Japanese can come and battle against the West. 
Not if you look at the Old Testament type. Not if you see that it's God's people. The ones who are the objects of the wrath of Babylon. And that this is worldwide. Let me ask you, is Babylon worldwide? Is the river worldwide? So is the Euphrates worldwide? Is the drying up worldwide? Is Israel worldwide? See the principle. It's so simple. But people have swallowed this futuristic idea. They've swallowed hook, line, sinker, fishing pole, and fisherman. <laughs> Number two. In Isaiah 8, 7 and 8, the invasion of the king of Assyria into Israel is compared with the river Euphrates, which is at flood stage, and reaches even unto the neck of Emmanuel's land. What is the neck of Emmanuel's land? Jerusalem. Unless any of you wonder whether it's Jerusalem, this is talking about the king of Assyria and all of his power. It's Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, you read the story in Isaiah chapter 37, 38 and 39. Sennacherib comes with 185,000 soldiers armed to the teeth. And their intention is to destroy Jerusalem. In other words, they've come up to the neck. You read the story. They've conquered everything in their path. The whole Holy Land has come under their dominion. The only thing that's left is Jerusalem. In other words, the water has reached unto the neck of the land of Emmanuel. But at the end time, the neck is not little old Jerusalem in the Middle East. It means that they will reach the necks of God's people all over the world because this is a worldwide river. The river is spoken of as stretching out its what? Its wings. By the way, also the invasion of the Romans in Daniel 9, it, it speak, speaks there about Babylon, or Rome rather, outspreading its wings when it destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70. And it's used in other places in the Old Testament to describe an invading army. Waters of a river, and when the river goes out of its banks, you have the wings of the dragon. Number four. Or is it number three? Number three. The what? The drying up of the river Euphrates must mean that these nations' multitudes, etc., are going to withdraw their support from Babylon. Is that clear in your mind? Did the drying up of the literal river mark the fall of Babylon? Did it mark the loss of support? Yes. So must it mean that the drying up of the Euphrates, Babylon's river in Revelation, which is a worldwide river, must represent that the multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples are going to withdraw their support from the harlot? Yes. Now, in fact, Revelation 17, 16 explains what the drying up of the Euphrates means. Because Revelation 17 is an amplification of the sixth plague. Whereas the kings had joined this harlot, they now what? They, and it's immediately after saying, the waters upon which the harlot sits are multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. And then it says, but the kings will what? Will hate the harlot and make her what? And make her desolate and naked. We saw that already in the Old Testament story. Eat her flesh and burn her with what? And burn her with fire. Number four, the kings from the east must represent the coming of the Chinese and the Japanese. <laughs> I'm being facetious to make a point. 
You say, don't ridicule this, this idea. I ridicule it because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It totally misses the whole issue in Bible prophecy. The issue is that God's people are being what? Targeted for destruction. It has nothing to do with nations inviting nations and fighting against Israel because they're Jews and everybody fighting in the Middle East for the oil. None of that is the issue. The issue is far deeper, far, far more profound than that. The kings from the east must represent the coming of whom? Of Christ with the heavenly armies to deliver his people from the oppressive power of Babylon. In Matthew 24, 27, the second coming of Christ is from the east. See, let the Bible interpret this. Now, number five, in Revelation 14, verse 20, we found some horses trampling the winepress outside the city. We didn't see who was riding the horses, and we didn't know the name of the city. Who are riding these horses? In Revelation 19, 11, Jesus is seen riding on a what? Riding on a white horse. And he is followed by the armies of heaven also riding on white horses. Who are the ones who are riding the horses that trample the wine press? It is Jesus and the angels. And why are they coming? Oh, to destroy the wicked. But even more importantly, to deliver God's people. Listen, some people say, how can God destroy the wicked? Because if he didn't destroy the wicked, the wicked would destroy his people who have made a covenant with him. See, the whole issue is the covenant. In this time of opportunity, God gives everyone on planet Earth a chance to ally themselves with Christ. If they choose to go against that covenant with Christ, Jesus doesn't force them. But when they arise to attack God's people, they're attacking the apple of God's eye. And God has to intervene. What happened in the Old Testament when uh, a lion or a bear came after one of David's sheep? Who was the, she who was the, the lion or the bear fighting against? You're not fighting against the sheep only by fighting against the sheep. They were trying to destroy what? Shepherd. Because the shepherd is one with his sheep. The same can be said about the church. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. When the body of Christ is mistreated, the head feels it. And Jesus says, I'm not going to allow my body to be destroyed on planet earth. So Jesus is the husband and the church is the wife. And Jesus says to the wicked, don't you beat up on my wife. Because if you do, you have to deal with me, not with her. Are you following me? So in other words, the final battle is not directly against God. It's against God in the person of his people. We need to understand that. Now, the note, the imagery of Revelation 14, 14 through 20 is taken from Joel, chapters 2 and 3. You need to read that. We don't have time now. It would be well to read these chapters for the background information. Number six, Jesus comes to tread the what? Now, wait a minute. Did we see the wine press some other place? So there's two wine presses. The same one? So my question is, is Revelation 19 amplifying what we read in Revelation 14, verse 20? Can you read Revelation in a linear fashion? No, you can't. If you want to understand it, that is. 
Jesus comes to tread the wine press, the same wine press that we found in Revelation 14, verse 20. Congregated to fight against him are the what? Now notice, don't miss this. The kings of the earth, the what? The beast. And who? Where did we see those three powers before? Are those the three powers that were denounced by the three angels? Yes. Are those the same powers that gathered people for the battle of Armageddon? Yes. So who are the enemies at the end of time? Is the Russians? The Arabs? The Chinese and the Japanese? No. The battle is between the dragon, which represents the kings of the earth, the beast, and the false prophet, and whom? Jesus, who is seated on the white horse, and the heavenly armies that are with Jesus. And Jesus is coming to defend his people because this threefold alliance wants to destroy his people. Is this a Christ-centered interpretation of prophecy? For whom is the honor and the glory? And the honor and the glory. See, most people say, oh, Jesus delivered me from sin. Listen, folks, it's true that Jesus delivered me from sin, but the day is coming when Jesus is going to have to literally deliver me from enemies. Not spiritually from sin, but literally from being obliterated against God's people, the ones who receive the seal of God. The ones who received the mark of the beast. The ones who chose to receive the mark of the beast or observe Sunday knowing that Sabbath is the day we were supposed to keep. There's two groups, right? right. Mm-hmm. Who, are, who is the opposite group of God's people? Babylon. Babylon is composed of how many parts? Three, Three parts. Dragon, beast, false prophet. Okay, the dragon represents the kings of the earth. The dragon wanted to kill Jesus when he was born. And Herod, of course, is the beast is whom? The Roman Catholic papacy. And the, and the false prophet of the Roman Catholic papacy that helps its wound heal and becomes an image is what? Apostate Protestantism in the United States of America. The dragon primarily represents Satan, but it also represents the kings of the earth through whom Satan fulfills his purposes. Uh, do you remember, for example, that uh, when Jesus was born, the dragon stood next to the woman to devour the child? Well, the devil didn't do it personally. He did it through the civil power, didn't he? And he used the civil power to have Christ crucified. And he used the civil powers during the Middle Ages to try and destroy God's people and actually destroyed many of God's people. And, but of course, we know that ultimately the dragon is whom? The dragon is Satan. And so the two groups are simply those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus and those who receive the mark of the beast, and those who disobey God's commandments. I don't know if that answers the question. What, what part is not clear so that I can a- try and answer it? Okay, L- let me put it this way so you can understand it better. Okay, L- L- let me just put it this way, uh, and you'll understand it. Revelation says that there are three powers that will war against God's people. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Right? That's Revelation 16, verse 13. But when you get to Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes on the horse and the armies of heaven follow on white horses, it says that the kings of the earth, the beast, and the false prophet are gathered against Christ. 
So that must mean the beast is already in Revelation 16.13. The false prophet is in Revelation 16.13. But the dragon in Revelation 16.13 is interpreted in chapter 19 as what? As the kings of the earth. Are you with me or not? Am I making myself clear now? Uh, I don't know how else, I, how else I can explain it. But you see, the three powers, let me put it here, are the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Are we all agreed those are the three powers? In Revelation 19, when Jesus comes to war against three, these three powers, is the beast there? Yes. Says the beast is there. Is the false prophet cast into the lake of fire? Yes, the false prophet is there fighting against Jesus. But there's no mention of the dragon. Instead of the dragon, what is mentioned? The kings of the earth. So in other words, Revelation 19 interprets the dragon as the kings of the earth. Okay, let's continue here. Number seven. Yes. Yes, it will become the false prophet. And it's a false prophet of Catholicism because it's going to impose the day which the Roman Catholic Church uh, Im implemented in place of the Sabbath as the day of worship, as we've studied in previous lessons. Uh, the United States will become a false prophet. The, the lamb, the beast that had two horns like a lamb, ends up speaking like a dragon. And I don't know if you were here the night that we studied about that beast that comes up from the earth. But we went through several characteristics that indicate that that second beast that comes up from the earth represents the United States. If, if you weren't here, I recommend that you get that tape because uh, we have all of the characteristics uh, presented in that class. Okay, we need to move on, folks, or else we're going to be here till nine. <laughs> okay, number seven. The place which is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon must refer to the what? to the wine press because that's where the wicked are gathered against God's people do you notice it says which is called in the Hebrew tongue in other words what we need to determine is what the meaning of the word is the emphasis is not the place the emphasis is the meaning of the word that describes the place and what does the word Armageddon mean it means mount of the congregation and what was the mount of congregation mount Zion Against whom does Babylon come? Against the city. Against Mount Zion. Is it literal Mount Zion? Where is Mount Zion today? Worldwide. All over the world, because Israel is worldwide. Now let's deal with the seventh plague here very quickly. The battle of Armageddon is not fought during the sixth plague. The preparation takes place under the sixth plague, but the battle itself is actually fought under the seventh plague. Under the seventh plague, the great city was divided into what? Before this, they were united. Right? But under the seventh plague, the city is what? Divided into three parts. And there were what? Noises and what? Thunderings and lightning. And there was a worldwide earthquake such as never has been. I want you to remember those signs. And then it speaks about what? Number two. At the seventh plague, Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the fierceness of his wrath. Islands and mountains disappeared 
and huge what? Hailstones fell from heaven. And now notice number three. At the conclusion of the story, God's people will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Now, we don't have a lot of time. Yes, Bonnie. Okay. Oh, back on page four, note number six. Page what? Four? Number six? Uh, the treading of the wine press is actually the seventh plague. Oh, the note? Uh, it becomes, where it says it, it becomes? Oh, okay, no. These are the very same three powers who are mentioned in connection with the sixth plague. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to rush so fast here that <laughs> I, I bypass certain things. But I don't know whether I should even get into this. <laughs> but maybe I should, at least for a couple of minutes. There's another Old Testament story which forms the backdrop to the fall of Babylon. And the reason why we know it forms the backdrop to the fall of Babylon is because Revelation speaks about the redeemed singing the song of Moses and the Lamb after they are delivered from Babylon. Now, this dictates that you have to go back to the deliverance of Israel at the edge of the Red Sea to understand fully the fall of Babylon. Now, I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. I have a list here. Maybe I should copy it off for you with 16 points. I'm going to just go, I'm just going to mention them. I wanted to tell you the story. It would take me about 10 minutes to tell you the story so that you really get excited about the story. But anyway, you get semi-excited now. <laughs> Israel was captive in Egypt. Correct? When they tried to keep the Sabbath, their oppression became worse. Do you know that when Moses and Aaron went in, they said, let, God, let my people go, God says, to celebrate a, a religious activity in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron were really intending on taking Israel to celebrate the Sabbath. And do you know what, you know what uh, uh, Pharaoh said? You can find this in Exodus 5, 3 and 4. He says, you make the people Shabbat. You want them to rest. You want them to keep the Sabbath. So Pharaoh says, oh yeah, they want to keep the Sabbath, huh? Now they'll make bricks and we'll provide no straw. So the Sabbath is involved in this story. And by the way, we know that the feast that they wanted to celebrate was the Sabbath because immediately after they sing the song of Moses, the very next chapter is the episode about the manna where they're keeping the Sabbath. So they came out of Egypt. And when they came out of Egypt, Pharaoh kicks into action. He says, why did I let these people go? And in Exodus 14, verse 3, Pharaoh says, the desert has shut them in because he's coming with 600 of his fine chariots behind Israel. In front of them is the Red Sea. On one side there are mountains and on the other side is the desert. He says, they're closed in. They're going to be destroyed. And then God says, I'll allow Pharaoh to pursue my people that I might be glorified in Pharaoh. <laughs> Interesting. By delivering his people, God is glorified. And so we find Pharaoh coming with his armies and his chariots. And Israel goes through a severe time of trouble. In fact, they cry out to God for deliverance from their enemies. And God says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
the Lord will fight your battles. See, the battle of Armageddon is not God's people fighting. It's the God of the people fighting in favor of his people against their enemies. And then the interesting thing is, notice this. What was the great obstacle to the escape of God's people? The Red Sea. As long as the waters of the Red Sea were united, there was no escape. But when the waters were dried up or divided, those two words are used. In Revelation it says the waters were dried up, and then it says the city was split or divided into three parts. See the terminology? Similar terminology? In other words, the waters of the Red Sea, when they're united, they're allies of Pharaoh and enemies of God's people. But then the waters are what? Are dried up to prepare a way for the escape of God's people. Are you catching the picture? And now the waters that were a help to Pharaoh, when they're divided, become inimical to Pharaoh. And of course, God's people go through the waters to the other side. And of course, Pharaoh and his armies go into the sea. They say, this is going to be a piece of cake because the water's divided. We're going to get it. And when all of them are in the midst of the waters, what do the waters do? The waters avalanche themselves upon Pharaoh and his armies. And it says in Exodus chapter 14 that in the morning when the sun came up, not one of them remained. And there's a detail which is very important, which I failed to mention because I'm rushing so fast, is that when they were at the edge of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire that stood in front of Israel passed over their heads and interposed between the armies of the Egyptians and Israel. And it says there in Exodus 14, 19, and 20 that the pillar caused darkness among the uh, armies of Pharaoh and it was a bright light on the sight of God's people. Now I want you to notice the last three plagues of Revelation. The fifth plague is darkness. The sixth plague is the drying up of the waters. And the seventh plague is lightning and thunder and a great earthquake. Do you know that those very things at the edge of the Red Sea prefigure the last three plagues? Plague number five is a plague of darkness upon the throne of the beast. Light upon God's people. And then the waters of the Euphrates are dried up. They take away their support from Babylon. And then the waters will avalanche themselves. The kings will hate the harlot. And all of these powers which were united are not going to arise to destroy each other. And one detail which many people don't know of. The seventh plague speaks about lightning and thunder and a terrible storm and an earthquake. Do you know that in Psalm 77, speaking about the experience, the last five or six verses of Psalm 77, it speaks about Moses and Aaron leading Israel. And we have a detail which is not in Exodus. It says that the waters saw God. And they were afraid. And it says that there was lightning. And there was thunder. And there was a great earthquake as God's people were led through the waters to escape. And then, when they got to the other side, they sang the song of Moses, which is in Exodus 15. And God's people at the end of time will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Are you with me? How important is it to have the Old Testament background, folks? See, that's the reason why people misinterpret prophecy today. They're trying, they're New Testament Christians. You can't be a New Testament Christian. You have to be a Bible Christian. Now, let's go to our last section. Very quickly, we have three minutes before 8.30. Have mercy, let's go here.
<laughs> the central issue in the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 16, 15 explains, by the way, I've read many books written by Protestant authors. And the books, you know, they talk about the kings from the east being the Chinese and the Japanese, and they talk about Armageddon as being the valley over there in Megiddo, and they talk about the dragon, the beast, and the image as some statue that's going to be put up on the Jerusalem temple. They have a lot to say, but there's one verse that falls through the cracks. Verse 15, which explains what this battle is all about. Revelation 16:15 explains what the battle of Armageddon is all about. Jesus says, "Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame." The battle is over how you are dressed whether you're covered with the righteousness of Christ or not. Are you following me? Yes. Or whether you chose to hang on to sin. By the way, the same warning was given to the church of Laodicea. Do you know what Protestant scholars say? They say, listen, the seven churches represent the period of the church age before the rapture. And as soon as the seventh church is finished, then you have the rapture, Revelation 4, verse 1. Which means that Laodicea is the seventh church that exists in the world before the rapture. My question is then, why would Jesus warn the church of Laodicea and say to them, watch your garments, lest you walk naked and they see your shame? Which is the very warning which is in the sixth place. What good would it be to warn Laodicea to be careful about their garments if they're not going to be in the world during the sixth place? Are you following me? The same warning then was given to the church of Laodicea. Number three, those who go through the tribulation will wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, prophecy is Christ-centered. It's how you deal with Jesus. Whether you receive Jesus as your Savior, whether you join Him in baptism and become a part of His body. Number four, the fine linen, clean and bright, which the bride of Christ wears are the what? are the righteous acts of the saints. See, they not only have the righteousness of Christ legally, but they have the righteousness of Christ in their actions, in their lives. Genesis 2.25 tells us that Adam and Eve, in their holy state, were naked and were not what? Ashamed. But when they sinned, they lost their glorious robe of light and found themselves naked and were what? And were ashamed. You have to go back to Genesis to understand this. I wish I had more time to amplify this point. They tried to cover their nakedness with what? Fig leaves. Their nakedness was later covered by God with an animal skin. The death of the lamb covered their nakedness. Are there going to be Christians in the world during the tribulation? Yes. Sure. The faithful will all be Christians because they'll be covered with the righteousness of the lamb. The central issue in the end time controversy is how you are dressed. If you have been baptized... By what I mean by baptism, I'm talking about immersion, being submerged under the water. That's the biblical model of baptism. You have put on Christ, and you are Abraham's seed, and have a right to inherit all the promises. Number six, God calls his people to come out of Babylon. 
If you're in one of these, one of these groups, God is calling you to come out. Boldly. Not say waver and say, oh, I don't know if I can handle it or not. The Lord will handle it. You make your choice to come out. God calls his people out of Babylon so that they don't participate in her what? In her sins. Nor receive her what? Her plagues. Are you willing to come out of Babylon and stand with those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus? I hope so. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.